All right, we are in Genesis 29, as we just read and we just prayed through. We are um, going to read about this God of disappointments, the one that reigns and rules over all things. And as we do, um, I have a question to get us um, started. I'm wondering, what do you do when you make a mess of your life? What do you do when someone else maybe makes a mess of your life? Um, this story has stuck with me for now five years and thought, hey, I guess uh, today's the day that we're going to reveal it and tell it. Do you guys remember um, a guy by the name of Bill O'Reilly? You've heard of this guy? Yes? Um, okay, so he was kind of the, the rock star of Fox News for 20 years until 2017 when his ratings were at their highest and his book sales were astronomical. Um, and he was kind of just uh, doing what he does best, which is rile up his base to do what they do best, apparently. Um, and as he did that, um, everything was going swimmingly for Bill O'Reilly, except for what was happening behind the scenes when six women accused him of sexual mis misconduct in the workplace. You don't know that. That's what happened five years ago. That's why you don't see him on Fox News, I don't think, anymore, <laughs> though I don't have Fox News. Um, so, after 20 years, six women accuse him of uh, improprieties, and just after this, after his downfall, after his influence was taken away, after his platform was taken away, after, quote-unquote, he was canceled, um, someone asked him on a podcast, how do you feel about God? Uh, if you don't know this, Bill O'Reilly professes to be a believer, and this is what he said as a result of his downfall. I wish I had more protection. I wish this stuff didn't happen. I can't explain it to you, but yeah, I'm mad at him. Talking about God. Adding, again, a, a prayer type lament, why did you work me over like that to God? Didn't you know my children were going to be punished? And they're innocent. I don't know what happens when you make a mess of your life, but sometimes we can look upward and go, why did you let all this happen? And we blame the Lord for our bad decisions, or perhaps we're not at that point where we're blaming the Lord for our own bad decisions, but certainly we've been at the point, at some point in our lives, where we've done that, but also blame the Lord for someone else's bad decisions that now have affected me, and yet somehow he is not present in that moment. And I think we have to, to wrestle with that God, and indeed Jacob will wrestle with that God in the coming weeks. But before we get there, we've got to wrestle with him at this well. We've got to figure out what it is that God is doing when we make a mess of our lives, and therefore also what, other, when, what happens when other people make a mess of their life and of our life. So do you blame God for your own bad decisions? When you've messed up, when you've fallen short of his standard, standards, do you run then like Jacob? And after God chases you down, in the midst of a dream. You remember the dream last week that Aaron preached on? After he chases you down in the midst of a dream, after he continues to work your circumstances in such a way that you have to take notice, what is your reaction? For Jacob, he's absolutely ignorant of God's movement amidst the chaos. What is God doing amidst the mess? Well, God's movement is clear if we will just have eyes to see amidst the chaos and amidst the mess. You see, last week what we learned, if you just kind of boiled everything down to one verse, last week in verse 15 of chapter eight, 28, it says this, this is kind of the highlight, right, of chapter 28. 
God says this to Jacob, even amidst stealing his brother's first right, even amidst of deceiving his father by, by pretending to be someone else, even amidst all, that he, all the craziness that he has kicked up in his own life, God promises this to Jacob in verse 15 of 28. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. It's a reiteration of God's Abrahamic covenant, and Jacob doesn't deserve it. And that serves as a warning for us, and it also serves as a comfort, does it not? Because we don't deserve what God has promised us, the same Abrahamic promises that he passes down to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then through Jesus to those that would believe and follow. So what do we do when God interrupts our space, even though we've made a, mi- a mess of our life? Well, some of us will continue on in rebellion. Others of us will at last repent and fall into the arms of Jesus, trusting in a faithful relationship with him. But all of us, no matter where we go on that spectrum, at one time wonder how many chances we'll get with God. You've gotten to that point in your spiritual life where perhaps you're on the way to Jesus and you've messed up so much that you're doubting whether or not he'll give you another chance or perhaps you're, you're walking with Jesus and you've messed up so much. Even the good stuff you're doing you start to realize, man, I fall short all far more than I thought I ever could. You get to this point of despair, of wondering, is God almost out of chances for me? Jacob's life, if Jacob's life does nothing else, let his life remind us that we are all saved by grace and not of good works. All right, so what is God up to amidst the mess? Amidst the chaos, amidst the rubble, well, there's three things. I think there is three things that we can be assured of, assured of in this particular passage. And number one, God is directing our every step. God is directing our every step. Even though Jacob is unaware of God's movement here in the first part of this, God is behind the scenes working his ways exactly as he once. You'll remember the story. Jacob has fled from his brother Esau. He is met uh, by God in a dream in chapter 28, as we just recapped. And God has promised presence. God has promised descendants as, dis- as dust of the earth. And he's promised to bring him back to the land. And through circumstance, God makes good on his promise to always be with, with Jacob. And Jacob is absolutely oblivious of this. Genesis 29 is a direct parallel with Genesis 24. If you remember Genesis 24, you remember that? Where Abraham sees his son Isaac, who's now 40, 37, 40 years old, somewhere around there. He realizes he needs to get her, him a wife, and he sends a, a servant up to the land where they came from, and it's up to this well where a servant then prays Right? He prays that the Lord would give him favor, that he, he observes this woman at the well from afar to see what kind of character that she has. And all of a sudden he goes, man, Lord, if this is the one that you want for my, for my servant's son, let her not just offer me water, but also water my camels also, which could have been a day's worth of watering 
And of course, this servant is observant from afar. And what we know is that this well is the exact well that Jacob is now at. A generation now later to the same household where it was Laban that was the one that was uh, kind of, you know, hey, are you sure, Rebecca, that you want to go with this servant some four to six hundred miles away to a strange land? You don't really know them. It was Laban in chapter 24. And it's now at the same well that Jacob shows up. And Genesis 24 highlights this beautiful character, the beautiful prayer life of the servant, the patience of the servant, observing the customs of the day, now pitting that against Jacob, who goes to the same well and has not the character of the servant of Abraham. And yet he is Abraham's grandson. So this passage in 29 is being highlighted as a foil almost against 24. And what we'll find is that the servant, not the patriarch, is well aware of God's ways. It, he is well aware of God's ways. Let's just pick up in Genesis 29 and read 1 through 6 again. Because what looks like circumstance is nothing less than God's sovereign provision. Look at 29 if we read it again with new eyes. Then Jacob went on his journey. Remember, he's woken up from a dream. He now is in the middle of chaos. He now goes up to his what ancestor's uh, house. And this is what it says. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, somewhat ambiguous for him. And as he looked, all of a sudden he just looked up, God sovereignly placing him exactly where he wants. And he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, flocks were watered. Oh, good, there's water in this well. The stone on the well's mouth was large, usually taking two to three people, by the way, to move this stone. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. A lot of customary things there we don't need to necessarily get dive into, but look at verse 4. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? He has no idea where he is. And they said, we are from Haran. Oh, that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. And they said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, oh, you know, you know, you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Yeah, we, yeah, Laban's our boy, man. Like, we're, we're close. We're tight with Laban. Oh, well, is it well with him? Like, is he in a good mood these days? Like, everything good with him? Yeah, yeah, everything's great, man. Everything's good, good with Laban's house. And he said, okay, well, if you guys could get out of here, that'd be great. Because what is about to happen is these guys go, yeah, yeah, everything's great with, with Laban's house. Actually, that's his daughter right there. Look, verse 7, behold, it is still high day. Oh, no, no, right before that. Uh, they said, it is well. You see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Because she was a shepherdess. Verse 7, Jacob says to them, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. A.K.A., I got my eye on her, and I don't want y'all around when I put my move on her. Y'all go on and get out. But they said, hey, dude, it's noon. We're not going to water our sheep right now. We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then water the sheep. What's going on here? I had to dig through all the customs, but ultimately it's this. The servant in Genesis 24 was dependent in prayer, and Jacob's prayer life is null and void. He's instead manipulating the situation like any good deceiver 
will do, and he's trying to get his own way. Jacob, it is starting to show in this narrative, is neither discerning nor dependent. The servant in 24 respected the local customs. Jacob pushes the shepherds away, and he moves the rock after, not be, after being instructed not to. And he does so all by himself, as if to say, I'm self-sufficient, and also, I'm really strong. The servant observes Rebekah's character in, verse 24, in chapter 24. Jacob jumps at the chance to impress Rachel. Look at verses 9 and 10. While he was still speaking with them, all right, y'all ain't leaving here. This is my one shot. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess, which was not customary in those days, but she did it anyways. And now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, the sheep of, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. What's going on here in the background is to give us this beautiful understanding that the servant of Abraham stands as an exemplary, as an exemplary servant, not just of Abraham, but of the Lord. And Jacob, on the other hand, is standing out as impulsive, as absolutely socially awkward. It was not customary to go kiss a woman. Go kiss a, another man on the cheek as if to say, man, you're welcome here, absolutely, but never another woman that's a stranger in a public place at a well. No, he is pushing past all kinds of things, and what the narrative is is that he is impulsive, he is insensitive, and he is unaware. He is unaware of God's presence. And whether or not he's aware or not, Yes, God, he, Jacob is making a mess of his life, but God is directing his steps exactly as he wants. On Tuesday night, we had a partner-only meeting where the partners and the members of our church gathered together, and it was how we opened our evening. Out of Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jacob's life was a mess. And I'd imagine most of us have had a summer that, you know, wasn't ideal. I don't know what your summer was like, but ours are just not ideal. Uh, maybe it's just coming off of last summer when we had sabbatical, and it was like eight weeks of bliss, no work, and it was beautiful, and we get to go to California, and we went to all, I literally went to all four uh, time zones in the U.S., spent time with my buddy over in North Carolina, we went up to Colorado for a conference, oh man! Beautiful, and then this year is like, oh, cool, we're going to go to the Frio, and there's no water in it. <laughs> That's fun. Beyond circumstances, what is God doing in me? What is God doing for me? I didn't make the mess, but certainly I was disappointed in my summer. Maybe you've made your mess, and you've been disappointed in the results and the fruit of that messy life. We've all made decisions that don't honor God, no matter if it's this, been this summer, this year, this decade, and we've either done it out of deceit of others or out of defiance of our good and gracious God, and the question has to start to go, is God giving up on me? Am I ever going to get past this sin? Am I ever going to get beyond this addiction? Am I always going to struggle with this particular thing? I mean, I don't have the courage to confess or to repent of with anyone. 
I wonder if we think God has a posture of just kind of crossing his arm and tapping his foot and going, when are you going to get your life together? Been watching you this whole time. When are you going to get your life together? That is not God's posture. Again, if nothing else from Jacob's life, that is not God's posture. He continues to provide even when he is unaware, even when he is insensitive, even when he is ignorant and impulsive and absolutely uh, insensitive to God's plans. But whether we are aware of God's movement in the midst of the mess or not, God's promises of his redemptive present remain steadfast. So, friends, as I finish this first point, what would it look like for you to pause and remember God's movement in the midst of the mess? In the midst of your circumstances that are coming up this week, perhaps it's time to dig a well, perhaps it's time to draw from that well and start to remember God's provision through gratitude. One of the things my wife does way better than I do is journal. And she's been able to look years into the past and remember all the ways that God has provided for her. Because she has kept a daily journal of gratitude for as long as I've known her. And when she starts to dip in her joy of what God is doing amidst the mess of a crazy school year or sports or disappointment in life or whatever it is that, bring, that God is going to bring our way, she can look back at that journal and go, man, God is faithful. She can continue to draw upon the well of gratitude that even though she doesn't feel it, even though you may not feel it in the moment, man, there is a strong record of God's provision. Our God directs our every step, and that's the good news. And along the way at that well, though we may be unaware of what God is up to, and though he did send Rachel at that exact moment, though he did send those shepherds at that exact place at a time when it was like high noon, and we're not even supposed to be watering our sheep yet, though he is doing all those things, in the midst of it, he may just lead us into a situation where he then will discipline us. You see, God also disciplines us amidst the mess that we make, Again, if you remember the circumstances from which Jacob is running, it is Esau's pursuit. He wants to murder his brother. He wants to murder his sibling, just as Cain did with Abel. But God's movement, although sometimes indiscernible, sometimes we're just ignorant of it, uh, and sometimes it is delayed, it does not mean that God isn't on the move. And I love what many commentators called the law of reciprocity is about to reproof Jacob. Now, if you know me, I'm pretty hesitant on using things like the law of tithing or the law of reciprocity, but I'm doing so because it's important that we hear it and that we um, receive it as God's people. What is the law of reciprocity? Well, it's found in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It's going to come up on your screen. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Think about the law of reciprocity, and don't let your mind go to karma, because that's not Christian. Here we go. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. Okay, so, so the deception here could be that God just is going to overlook all the things. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. Now, to sow is a purposeful act. 
Okay, so you need to know this is purposeful, intentional sin is what he's talking about here. Or acts of holiness. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, a.k.a. sins, intentionally, will from your flesh reap corruption or destruction or death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit then reap eternal life and reward. This is not karma. This is not a one-to-one ratio payback, but a warning and an axiom for life from which to live because God, again, will not be mocked. He knows. He is sovereign. For those of us who are in Christ, again, Paul is writing to a church, to those who are in Christ And so it's not necessarily one of like, hey, be careful, you might go to hell. It's one of, hey, be careful so that you live according to the good deeds that God has shown you in Christ Jesus. And to show that and to demonstrate that through all of life. God is gracious, yet he loves us too much to let us keep sinning. There will be consequence not his fault that we made a mess of life and therefore there's now consequence to that mess he loves us far too much to let us live without consequence students in the house your parents love you far too much to let you sin and not give you a punishment you should thank them the next time they ground you or take your phone away or don't give you an allowance because you didn't deserve it to begin with all the students are like, dude, could you quit talking to us? No, you're in here for a reason. You're still not laughing, students, and I'm, I'm offended. <laughs> I hear you. I don't know who that was, but I hear you. Mm-hmm. I'll call you out, bro. All right, look at this, right? Look, sin is like, just, if you didn't like my little, my little uh, talk about your phones and about whatever else or discipline, think about it like this. Uh, you don't like going to the dentist, I would imagine. No one does. If you're a dentist in here, dental hygienist, God bless your work. No one likes to see you, but we show up anyways. That's got to be hard and difficult, but I love that you're doing it because I'm a better for it, and my kids are. Sin is like our constant desire or our kids' constant desire for sugar. We want more of it. If, though if we're parents, we give constant sugar to our kids, what's going to happen? It's going to rot their teeth. That's why God gave us two sets of teeth. We can ruin the first first pair, and God knows we're going to ruin it with all the dum-dums that you can imagine as a young kid, all the Jolly Ranchers that you can imagine. If God didn't discipline us, it would be like a dad or a mom continuing to give you all the Jolly Ranchers you could ever hope for and never taking you to the dentist, never telling you or, or, or swatting your little behind for not brushing your teeth. I don't know about you. There's a point in all of our kids' lives where they just refuse to brush their teeth. And we would tell them, you can do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is that you do it on your own, and I stand here and watch you. The hard way is I have you in a headlock and I do it for you. All of them at one point chose the hard way. Only one time, hopefully. I won't call out anybody that did it more than once, but nonetheless. This is God's discipline, and it is out of love that he would sometimes orchestrate crazy plans like Laban's plot to discipline Jacob. Jacob was not the man yet. 
to carry God's promises forward. And yet God had promised that that man would carry the promise forward. What's he to do? Except to chasten him. To discipline him. To disappoint him. And so we read Laban's devious plan. And we see it really getting put in place right here in verse 13. Read with me. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told all Laban all these things. Now, if you're Laban, if you go back into the story, it was Laban that met the servant at the well in Genesis 24. And what did he find? But gifts and money and camels and riches. And so Laban's got to be thinking at the house, they're back! And he gets to the well and he finds Jacob there and Jacob has nothing. Squat. So they have this really long conversation and Jacob tells him all these things in verse 13. This is a pivotal verse. We don't know what he said. But we do know Laban changed his tune. Look at verse 14. And Laban said to him, surely you were bone in my flesh. And he stayed, uh, oh, I missed some, sorry. Uh, verse 13, he came to his house, Jacob told him all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? All right, here's what's going on behind the scenes culturally. Laban, is, his response in verse 14 isn't, oh, you're my relative. It's after Jacob tells him all these things that he realizes Jacob is a deceiver just like Laban. Oh, you and I are cut from the same cloth. You're here because of those circumstances? Sounds like something I would do. But welcome into the household, Jacob. Since you're here and we're family, which it would have been customary for him to work for him without pay, he then says, I don't want you as my family. I want you as my servant. So what is it then that I can go ahead and pay you here for? And he switches and changes his relationship from a familial one to a transactional one. And friends, whenever you are in a transactional relationship where it's tit for tat and a bunch of scorekeeping, it will go nowhere but south. Nowhere but south. Laban Laban previously plans to marry, uh, excuse me, deviously plans to marry his daughters into what he knows is a wealthy family. And he starts to put into practice all that he uh, knows he can get over on Jacob. Laban agrees, right, to give her to Jacob. So Jacob then goes to Laban and says, oh, you want to know what my wages are? Well, I got to tell you, this Rachel girl, uh, your daughter, man, I, I am like Ed Sheeran with her. I, I li like, I'm in love with the shape of her. No? We should have wrote that one in the notes and not thought about it. All right, perfect. He is in love with the shape of Rachel, right? I know, it took a while. Welcome. Dad jokes, don't stop on the stage, y'all. Here we go. 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form. He is in love with the shape of her and appearance. He has, he's not looking at her character. He's looking at what she looks like, and she, he looks over at Leah and goes, you got weak eyes, and I'm not interested, but her, 
I'm just reading the text, y'all. Is this not what happened? <laughs> now, the weak eyes are going to play an important role for us. It's not what you think it is. Most people don't think it's blindness. Most people think it's a passion and a spark for life. And Leah didn't have it. Rachel, on the other hand, she's out there shepherding, doing what she needs to get done, right? He sees her in form, and he loves her. Probably didn't start out with love, but another L word. And so he says to Laban, hey, look, you got two daughters. If you want to know what my price is, I would like to work for your younger daughter, Rachel. And he says, okay, I'll give her to you. Cue the deception. And if we kept on reading... This is what Laban then puts into focus. In verse 22, he then throws a wine banquet. Literally, the Hebrew word there isn't just banquet. It's a wine banquet. Laban knows what he's doing. He knows that Jacob just isn't going to lay down with anybody. He's looking for Rachel. What does Laban do? Gets Jacob drunk. Throws the party. The party of all parties gets Jacob drunk, sends him to the tent, which would have been utter darkness, uh, the marital tent, so to speak. And as he sends him to the tent, he then sends in Leah, who would have been veiled all day long. Who knows what he did with Rachel? Because apparently if Rachel was at the party, surely Jacob would have been like, hang on. But, hey, hmm. But instead, Leah is veiled all day long. And then Laban sends Leah into the tent, veiled and in darkness. And what do we find? Deception upon deception. Leah had a weak passion in her eyes, as we talked about, right? But Jacob had a weak passion in his heart. Now, if you read verse 26, and let's just read it together, because I think this is where the movie kind of fades and the, 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 the dramatic music kind of comes up, right? And all of a sudden, there's a flashback right here in verse 26 where Jacob just goes, oh my gosh, I know what's going on. Verse 26 says this, Laban said, he goes to, to Laban, right? Uh, he wakes up, Leah is there instead of Rachel, and he goes in verse 25, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And in verse 26, this is the flashback. Laban said to him, hey, I don't know how you do things in your country. We don't neglect the firstborn in our country. And boom, it happens on Jacob. And that little moment right there where he has stolen from the blessing from the firstborn comes back to haunt him and the law of reciprocity to discipline and, and, and rebuke Jacob is in full effect and he says all right well jacob has nothing to give he has nothing to offer and so all he can do is give seven more years because he still still loves rachel but he doesn't have her yet jacob's selfish preferences were being rebuffed by god's providence Jacob was reaping what he sowed a long time in Canaan, and God did not decree the way in which he secured the firstborn, and so now God is going to discipline it out of him over 14 years of long service to someone he would grow to loathe, never trust, and eventually deceive as he leaves there. 
So how are you dealing with the parts of your life that aren't preferential? Remember Jacob, he preferred Rachel. And he got Leah. What's going on in your life that you don't prefer? How about your marriage? Do you prefer that these days? Are you in a season or a rut? Or perhaps you've been married for X amount of years and you're still going, are we still dealing with that? Yeah. Until you give it up, you're going to still be dealing with it. Maybe it's, it's not a, a marital uh, disappointment or a situation, uh, but perhaps it's material. You don't have what you thought you were going to have at this point in your 30s or your 40s or your 50s or your 60s or your 70s or your 80s. Friends, how does your marriage... How does your marriage show you where you need to grow up in Christ? How does the lack of material goods show you where you need to change your heart and therefore continue to trust in God's providence in his son? Perhaps it's professional disappointment. Not where you thought you were going to be at this point in your life. You thought you'd be upper to middle management. You thought you'd have your own business. You thought whatever and it's not been done. How does, again, your disappointment with what you think you can do help drive you to a gratitude in what God has already done? Or perhaps a spiritual walk where you're lacking. In all of your lack, God is showing you his fullness. Look at what it says in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 about discipline. It says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as the Father the Son in whom he delights. Friend, if we find ourselves in a season of discipline from the Lord, the, the same God then instructs us, rejoice! God's treating you like a son or a daughter. If he didn't discipline you, if he just gave you whatever you wanted all the time, all that sugar, not only would your teeth rot out, but your soul would rot with it. And he just let you go and have whatever you want. But he loves you far too much to treat you like that. As a son or a daughter, yes, our God is disciplining us through non-preferential circumstances. And finally, it's a great encouragement to remember that God is using everything. If you are not aware of God's providence in your circumstances, then you are not aware that God lovingly disciplines us in disappointment, then we, friends, are in danger of growing in bitterness. You see, ignorance leads to bitterness, but awareness can lead to gratitude. Jacob got away with deceiving his father and his brother, and now Laban has gotten away with deceiving Jacob. And in both circumstances, God uses the deception and the darkness of the human heart to draw Jacob's heart to himself. And he's doing the same thing for us, is he not? For Jacob, through the discipline which came from Laban's deception over 14 plus years, God built in Jacob the character he lacked otherwise as a servant. For us, through our failures, both professionally, maritally, spiritually, materially, you could keep adding on to that. Whatever failures we could think of when we think of that word, God is building in us the character and compassion and the mercy for others that we would otherwise lack. For Jacob, through the rejection of his father, 
of his brother and now his uncle, God is building in Jacob a deep, deep identity that is found in the assurance of the acceptance that comes through God and God alone. And for us, through rejection of those that we love because we've stood for Jesus at Thanksgiving. We've, we've said no to certain things in our lives with our friends for the sake of Christ, though we may now be standing alone in rejection, God is building in us a confidence and an acceptance in Christ. And so I'll just reiterate three passages as we go. It'll come up on the screen. Just write them down if you want. Romans 8, 33 through 34, right next to the one that Natalie quoted earlier. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Students, if you hear nothing else, you're going to get charged with a lot of things this year in your school year. You're not cool enough, you're awkward, you're this, you gossiped, you did that. Some of it may be true, most of it probably won't. But who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, a.k.a. he's the one that makes things right, both with you and him, and can make you right with you and others. And who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. The good news is that Christ is not condemning you. He's praying for you. You see, our God wastes nothing in our lives and he uses everything. And so my question for you is, what is he using it for? And it is to form in us what was lost at the fall, the image of Jesus in our hearts. The way in which God does that is typically through disappointment, Chaos, discipline, hardship. So again, these final two passages, Romans 5, 3, and 4, through chaos, disappointment, and trial, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Endurance then produces character, which we previously lacked, and character then produces the hope. Or in James 1, Jesus' half-brother would say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's God doing amidst the mess? He is providing for his people, just like he provided a wife for Jacob at the well. Is he winking at our sin or at the sin of others? No, he uses it to rebuke, to reproof, to correct us and them so that we'll be the kind of people that God wants to use to build his kingdom, not our own. Yes, our sovereign God uses all these things to bring us closer to him so that we will not drift from the king who promises the kingdom. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are grateful that you are not absent amidst our mess, whether it be the mess that we made for ourselves or a mess that someone else made and we're swimming in it. We'll take a moment before we respond in song to ask the Holy Spirit to remind us of the teachings of God's word just as Jesus promised he would.
And in this still place, we don't want to rush past the moments that we need to just kind of be aware. So in this moment, where's God been moving where you maybe weren't sure he was moving? Where you've given into the lie that just because you didn't get what you wanted, then God must not be in it. Or you've given to the other lie that just because you got one, it got what you wanted, God must be in it. It's not always the case either which way. And then sometimes we just need to stop and discern our circumstances so that we can stop and discern God's sovereignty. So Holy Spirit, remind us, search our hearts. Where we need to repent, may we repent. Where we need to rejoice, may we rejoice. But in all things, may we recount your goodness, your nearness, and your promise to be present with sinners. Help us now respond in song to your glory. Do we pray now and sing in Jesus' name. Amen.